Amen. Well, we're at Revelation chapter 20. Tyler, thanks for getting our hearts prepared for getting into your word. Chapter 19 closed with the universe back under the control of the king. Now chapter 20, the king of the universe is taking control and he's turning this earth back into the paradise that he created at the, be- at the very beginning. And God begins this uh, change of the earth by ridding us of our arch nemesis. This is so good. I love the way chapter 20 begins. Would you join with me? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished. Now, If you'll remember, as we looked at this situation last week, the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist, they were thrown into a place called the eternal lake of fire. And we'll get back to that at the end of this chapter. But Satan, he's put in jail, and he's in a place, it's called the bottomless pit, as we understand in Scripture and like in the book of Luke, it's a place where unbelievers are today being held for the final white throne judgment that we'll see at the end of this chapter. But then verse 3 explains why Satan is put there, but not in the lake. It says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Apparently, God's not done with Satan. He still has a use for Satan. What use could you know, God possibly have for our nemesis, Satan? Well, it brings up an interesting discussion that goes way beyond the scope of this Bible study, but it's certainly something that a lot of us have thought about have prayed about, have asked the Lord about, Satan's existence, his evil. Even though it's always been at, at your limiting, it's still there. And oh, how we wish that there would have never been anyone or anything created like Satan. And it's not that you approve of the devil's acts. No, you certainly do not. In fact, he grieves your heart like nothing else grieves your heart. Nonetheless, God allows Satan to exist for, though limited in latitude, I believe, as I've studied scripture, that Satan's existence is what causes or forces mankind, who has the freedom of choice, to choose between evil, or to choose God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, all through 
that we have as a free gift through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here that at the end of the thousand years, Satan must be released for a little while again. And it's for the same reason that he causes havoc today. There must be a personal choice made. And at this time, there's going to have to be a personal choice made at the end of the thousand years of Jesus uh, ruling on this earth. And we'll get back to that later in this chapter. So Jesus is setting up his kingdom, his rule on this earth. And he's not going to rule by himself. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. This is where that first they, I believe, is the army that rode in with Jesus at the end of chapter 19 and and conquered uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet and the nations and set up his rule on earth. And it includes you and me, uh, the church that is raptured when we're raptured, and any saint that has uh, trusted in Jesus and gone on to be with the Lord. But uh, verse 4 continues. Let's look at that. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Let's talk about those. Now, these are those who went through the tribulation and they would not give in to the Antichrist. They came to know Jesus as their personal Savior and at whatever cost they gave their hearts and lives to him and followed Jesus well, now they're part of Jesus' administration and the rule and reign of this new kingdom that Jesus is setting up. And as we finish verse 4, And they lived and reigned, they being the pre-tribulation saints and the tribulation saints, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, when Jesus came the first time, That's when he came to go to the cross to be our sacrificial death to take away our sins. And that's when he established his kingdom in the hearts and lives of believers on this earth. And Jesus told us, remember, in our prayer as he gave the prayer to the disciples, pray like this, Oh Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, now in the book of Revelation chapter 20, this prayer is finally and fully answered. This is what's happening on planet earth. Revelation 20 gives us the duration of his kingdom on earth, a thousand years. But as you look in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of passages that talk about the millennial kingdom and the reign and rule of Jesus on this earth. Uh, The earth's waters will be all rejuvenated. The vegetation will be replenished. It will be like the Garden of Eden, I believe. The curse will be lifted. This is what I like. No more thorns or thistles. 
No more birth defects. God will reestablish his design, the design of the DNA, and it will again become perfect. Reduction in crime. No more animosity between men and animals and animals and animals. Isaiah 11.6 tells us that the wolf will, will dwell with the lamb. No more crazy storms, ice storms, hurricanes, tornadoes. Nature will no longer be a destructive force during this time. And this is what I like the most. No more war. No more pain and suffering because Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning on this earth. Paradise restored. There will be a strange mix of people on the earth at that time. There will be mortal men who live alongside resurrected believers. And that's you and me. There will be people, followers of Jesus, that will survive the tribulation and they'll go into this thousand-year rule and reign of Christ, and then they will marry. They will have children, but their children, they'll have to make up their own minds. Am I going to follow Jesus? Do I want Jesus to come into my heart and my life? Do I like the rule of King Jesus? See, he's ruling with a rod of iron, and he won't allow He won't allow nations to go to war anymore. And he won't allow sin to hurt people during this time. But each one of those will have to personally make up their mind. Do I also want him to be my personal Lord and my personal Savior? They'll be be saved just the same as we are by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we in the millennial kingdom, our bodies as we come back to rule and reign with Christ, we'll have the same capabilities that Jesus' resurrected body has. Have you ever considered that or thought about that? Recall how he would would just pop in and and show up right in the middle of a a meeting and his disciples, uh, they didn't know what to think. Sometimes they thought he was a ghost. He would then eat with them and they would, he would he said you know to doubting thomas here put put your hand in my side here touch the wound it it's me i'm alive um and we're going to have the same kind of resurrected body that jesus had uh i'd like to say when we want to travel uh we won't have to go through the lines at the airport we'll just travel at the speed of desire Want to go to Hawaii? You're there. Wow, what a glorious time that will be. Verse 5 goes on. But then the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And then he says this is the first resurrection. That verse can be a little bit confusing, but let me explain what's happening there. Jesus talked about two resurrections. The resurrection of life, that's the first resurrection. And then the resurrection of condemnation. He talked about this in John chapter 5, verse 29. Now believers, at this time, they're raised to life 
That's the first resurrection. Unbelievers, they're left where God has deposited them for a time to be judged at a later time. Both resurrections are found in this verse, verse 5. What the Lord didn't mention earlier when he talked about these two resurrections is there's a thousand years between the two resurrections. Let's talk about the resurrection of life. Well, that began with Jesus. The New Testament calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the first of the first to overcome death and never die again, to live eternally. Then the church joins the resurrection at the, at the rapture. And this is the fullness of the church joining the resurrection, followed by those who are martyred by the beast coming out of the great tribulation period. Then we go to the resurrection of condemnation or the second resurrection, the rest of the dead that won't be resurrected until the end of the thousand years are finished. And so we're told, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years, the resurrection of life. Now, as we move to the next verses, the plot thickens. Look at what's going on here. Verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And as if we couldn't guess what he's going to do. It's like a hardcore criminal. He's out for revenge in every possible way, shape, or form. And so we see in verse 8, and so, and Satan, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as of the sand and the sea. So, the Lord again talks of Gog and Magog. you got to remember there's been a thousand years of paradise on earth, of an incredible time of people getting along. The curse is gone. Uh, Jesus rules in righteousness and love and everything. It couldn't be better. And yet when Satan goes out, there are those who say, you know, we never did like the way Jesus ruled with that rod of iron. We didn't have a choice to do the things that we wanted to do. And so there's a rebellion that takes place at the end of the thousand years. Those that were born during this period and they didn't open their hearts to Jesus. They weren't saved by grace through faith and trusting Jesus as their Savior, even though they could physically see Him and learn about Him. They didn't want anything to do with Him. So now the thousand years has expired. Gog and Magog, Satan pulls together again. What in the world is that all about? If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 
says that this is the name of the battle that we had at the end of Revelation 19, Gog and Magog. And this is the battle that, where they are destroyed. So are they coming back? What's going on here? I think it's more of a term or a usage like we use for Napoleon when Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo. We go, wow, that was Napoleon's Waterloo. I think the, that the scripture is using this as, wow, this is Satan's Gog and Magog. This is Satan's Waterloo. This will finally do him in. So, verse 9. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And just like that, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. There was no battle. It was over before you know it. The instigator, Satan, he finally gets his due. Here we go. Look at verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said, by the way, that this lake of fire, this separation for eternity from their creator, it was made not for man, but Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one that this lake of fire, this outer darkness that he calls, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Think about that. This is where Satan has his ultimate and final destination for eternity. What on earth is Satan trying to do? I think he's trying to drag and deceive as many people as he possibly can to end up in what was created for him. Then I saw, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. What an ominous sight this is. White, holy, perfectly pure, filled with righteousness. And then a great throne. It speaks of the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his throne. He's sitting on this great white throne. And we'll learn in verse 12 that this is the throne of, ju of judgment. As I think about this throne of judgment, I think of when Jesus was on earth the first time. Remember, there was a, a long list of people who judged him. First, Caiaphas, the high priest, judged him and mocked him. King Herod and soldiers, the Romans, judged him, mocked him. Herod said, oh, I've been wanting to see Jesus. Do some miracle for me. And Jesus just was silent. And Herod mocked him. The Jewish Sanhedrin, we don't want this man to rule over us. Pilate gave in to the pressure of the political scene. The Jewish mob screamed, crucify him, crucify him. We want nothing to do with this man. 
And everyone throughout all history who has declared, we'll not have this man rule over us and tell us what to do and tell us what's right or wrong or be part of our lives. They judge Jesus unfit to follow, unfit to worship. Well, now he's sitting on the judgment seat. He's the one that loved us so much. He loved all mankind to the point of growing to the cross to die for our sins that we might be forgiven. But for everyone who has refused his love, who want nothing to do with him, let's see how they stack up as he takes the judgment seat. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled. It just it disappeared. Went away. And there was found no place for them. So let's talk about that. What's going on there. After a thousand years of renovations. And perfect paradise and rule on earth. God at the end of time. Decides to just ditch earth. And the heavens. And he decides to start brand new. Why would God do that? I don't pretend to know, of course, all of his reasons. But as I've thought about it, perhaps he wanted us to know that this world and the things in it, they're just simply a launching pad, a a stage for a time that we can choose to fall in love with our God and to receive our Lord and Savior Jesus as our personal friend and Savior and God. It's a place where we can choose to want to love Him and to be loved by Him. And what truly matters is the things that last forever, not not the things that will someday just disappear. But what I like most about this verse is it tells me that every trace, every remnant of Satan and sin and sorrow and pain and all that sin brings. It'll be gone forever. Hallelujah. What a glorious day that will be. Peter talks about this in Second Peter chapter 3. He tells us of this day in Revelation. But the day of the Lord, it will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them, they'll be burned up. They will be gone. Now, we've talked about Colossians chapter 1, 17, where it tells us that it is our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Creator, who created everything that is, that our world as we know it today, it's somehow held together in Christ all things are held together. It's Jesus who holds together His creation, the universe. One day He'll just let go. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Every nucleus of every atom will explode in fission and melt down the universe as we know it. It will be no more. All that will be left is mankind and their Creator. 
suddenly everyone from the bottomless pit at this time, all believers, un, excuse me, all unbelievers, everyone who has rejected Christ, this is the moment that they will be raised a resurrection to judgment. Every rebel who has said in their hearts, I want nothing to do with Jesus in my life or controlling my life or being a part of my life. I want to do my own thing the way that I want to do it. And they've rejected the free gift of eternal life through the precious blood of God's Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they will stand before Jesus at this time and they will answer for that decision that they've made. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great. So here we are, famous, not so famous, all judged by the same criteria. All judged by how they measure up to the perfect righteousness and glory of God Himself. They're all standing as we go on verse 12, they're all standing before God and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works and by the things which were written in the books. These books, I believe, contain every deed, every thought, every intention of the heart, the depths of every human being, everything that was ever done, everything is exposed, nothing is hidden. Everyone who has rejected Jesus and his precious blood that was poured out on their behalf, they are now left completely on their own, exposed. There's no robe of Jesus' righteousness to cover up their sins. Remember, if you're in Christ, if you've invited Jesus to be your Savior, if you've seen the cross of Christ and you know that He died for you on that cross and you have repented of your sins and you have opened your heart's door and you've received Jesus as your Savior, uh, you won't be at the white throne of judgment. You are covered by the righteousness of Jesus himself. But according to verse 12, the people under scrutiny here are judged only according to their own works. The last thing that I ever want to happen to me is to stand on the merit of my own works. Who but Jesus himself lived that perfect, sinless life? Only he could live a sinless life. And then he gave himself on my behalf, on our behalf. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our unrighteousness is as filthy rags before the eternal, holy, glorified God. If we're judged according to to our efforts, if I'm judged according to my efforts, I am in such big trouble. 
I remember the day that the Lord touched my heart and I realized that if I'm left alone, I have no hope. And I, I told the Lord, I've tried to live up. I've tried to be a, a good church member. I just can't get there. And he spoke to my heart. And he says, Lee, don't you understand that that's why I had to go to the cross? It was for you. So that your sins could be forgiven. And it's like I woke up and a light came on. And I go, well, of course. It's what you've done for me. You died for me. My sins are washed away by your blood. And I gave my heart to Jesus. And I encourage you to do the same. It's Jesus' robe of righteousness that we desperately need. It was the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary that gives us eternal life and forgiveness of sins. You see, God doesn't grade on the curve. God grades on the cross. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Hades, it opens up its hatches, and unbelievers come before and have to stand before their Creator. And on their own, no one stands a chance. Even the best of the best will fail the test. For Romans 3.23 says, For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now remember, Hades is like the holding cell. It's like the county jail. Temporary. It's where souls of unbelievers are today. Yes, it's a horrible place, but that's not the permanent end. The lake of fire is like the super max prison, the final destination. When you're judged and you're judged lacking at the great white throne judgment, the lake is where you end up. And despite popular lore and cartoons and jokes that are made, there's going to be no wild parties at the lake. There's only fire, brimstone, and scorching regret. And verse 14 reads, verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Physical death is the first death. Unless you're like Enoch and the Lord just takes you home or you're raptured before you have to experience death. Everyone will experience the first death. But the lake, eternal judgment, is talked as the second death. There's an old saying that goes like this. Born once, you're destined to die twice. Born twice, you'll only die once. Come to Jesus, be born again, and the only uh, death that you'll face is just a physical death. The first death is not the one you have to worry about. It's the second death, the lake of fire. C.S. Lewis put it like this. 
the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded. Some have said in their hearts, and they know about Christ, or they see His creation, but they really want nothing to do with the Creator God. Leave me alone, Jesus. I don't want to follow you. I don't want you to be a part of my life. I don't want you to be involved with me. I'm not interested. I especially don't want you in my heart and changing my life. Just some personal thoughts about the lake of fire, about the eternal darkness that Jesus talked about. And as I thought about hell and what that is, this comes to mind for me. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't let Satan drag you down that path. For every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly light. And he does not change like shifting shadows. And my thought is this. What makes hell, hell? It's being separated forever from a God who loves us with all his heart and soul. It, from a God who created everything that's, that's worth living for everything that's really meaningful, every perfect and, and gift that's filled with light and wholeness and happiness, everything. Can you imagine being separated from that for all eternity? Separated from a, a God who desires with all his heart to give every good and perfect gift the Father of heavenly lights, choosing to be forever separated from Him. It, it, I don't think it can be expressed with words. Most likely, words alone can't picture what that's going to be like, to be separated from everything that's good and, and worth living for, from our Creator God, and literally to be stuck with evil itself, with Satan for all eternity. Words also can't express the picture of the reality of what it's going to be like in eternity with Jesus, being welcomed into his presence, being forever covered by his righteousness, being with him and all that he has for us for eternity. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Just as words alone can't describe the, the horridness of being separated from the goodness of God for eternity, words alone can't express the incredible joy that Jesus has in store for us in heaven. Chapter 20 closes. Verse 15. 
And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's the most important question you could possibly settle in your heart and your mind today. What have you personally decided about Jesus? Have you opened your heart to him? Do you want him to come into your life and to love you and to be there for you and to lead and guide your steps? Is your name written in the book of life? The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Are you trusting Jesus? Or are you holding him back? Not ready yet, Lord. Are you choosing to just take a chance and stand on your own good works? The stakes are so high. It will determine where you and I spend eternity. For the last 2,000 or more years, the love of Christ has been sent out worldwide. For the last seven years in the book of Revelation, the 144,000 Jewish uh, evangelists, the two witnesses, the three angels, don't take the mark. Trust your heart to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. The eternal, everlasting gospel. And we'll close with this this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 10, Rejoice! This is what this is what you need to be focused on. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven in the book of life. There will be a day when the books are open and the book of life is open. Is your name written in the book of life? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this book, the revelation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It brings everyone to the point of making a decision. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who's trying to hang on to their own religion or good works, that they just let go. Come to you. For that's why you had to go to the cross, that our sins would be washed away by your precious blood and we would be made new from the inside out. Lord, we love you so much. And Lord, as Tyler sings this song, may those who don't know you come to know you. And we who know you Just rededicate our hearts and our lives and our future. Just knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we can trust everything into your hands of love for us. For we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look so forward to the time when we can start to meet again as a church family. Uh, you are dearly loved. May the Lord just richly bless you and watch over you and take care of you in these difficult days. Also, a reminder, get a hold of us with any needs or prayer requests on the screen. Uh, there will be a way, the way to, to get a hold of us. May the Lord richly bless you. Thank you.